welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today, fireflies in Moab. And they are a source of wonder for people, and they're so exciting for people to see. Dragonflies in Boulder. Left of the bindweed flower on a diagonal piece of grass. Yes, I see it. Boy, they can disappear even when you're pointing right at it. Skateboarders in Telluride. Aubrey, nice line. You okay? Bagpipers in Aspen. Then it captures their heart because it's a very emotional instrument. It has just a special sound. Traditional Puebloan dancers in Mesa Verde. a Rocky Mountain troubadour in Estes Park. Well, I never get tired of playing Rocky Mountain High or those songs um, because it gives people so much joy to hear them. They associate that music with this place. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. One of summer's nighttime wonders is the firefly. But many people think they're not found in this region. As KZMU's Emily Arnston reports, that is not the case. Until recently, a lot of people, including scientists, thought fireflies only lived east of the Rockies. But a citizen science initiative called the Western Firefly Project is debunking that myth. They ask people across the West to document firefly sightings. And in Utah alone, they've discovered that fireflies live in at least 27 of the state's 29 counties, including Grand County. Entomology is super exciting because there's so much about insects that we don't know in the world. Christy Bills is the director of the Western Firefly Project as well as the Invertebrates Collection Manager at the Natural History Museum of Utah. But I never suspected there was something as charismatic and wonderful right in Utah's backyard. Why did people think we didn't have fireflies in Utah? Utah is a super recreational state. People spend a lot of time outdoors. However, people don't spend a lot of time recreating in marshy areas, which is where fireflies usually are. When we recreate, we're usually out in the desert or we're in, in our tents after 10 o'clock at night, you know, so we're usually not looking in the right place. People who do see fireflies sometimes have misconceptions about where they came from. So occasionally some people will say, oh, they're new to the state, but they're absolutely not new. Or they'll think that they brought a jar from Kansas or Missouri, like in the 1960s, and that their family brought the whole population of fireflies throughout the state. But actually, that's not true. They've been here all along. When Bill started the project 10 years ago, they had only heard of three or four firefly populations in the state. But they only flash for about six weeks. And so it's impossible for the small team of entomologists to go find them during that short time. So we turned it into a citizen science project and asked people to tell us where they were. And then when people started telling us, it was fascinating. It turned out that they were in at least 27 of the 29 counties, especially in wetter counties like Summit, Cache County. There's a ton in Utah County right in the middle of the state. And there's actually multiple populations in Moab. So there are multiple different types of species here? So mostly throughout the state, 
We believe there's one predominant species. However, Moab is weird. (laughs) You guys know you're special. You know. (laughs) The two specimens, which were the only ones we've been able to collect from Moab, were different than all the other ones that we've collected throughout Utah. So they're a different genus. And um, despite having other people try and re-find populations in Moab, we haven't been able to collect them again. In Moab, they've found specimens at Grand Staff Canyon and Old City Park. Bills encourages people to spend time near marshy areas after 10 p.m. for a chance to see them. And something you said earlier was that people have a false assumption that fireflies were introduced to Utah. And you said that's not true. But how do you know that's not true? Luckily, we have one person who has a farm in Spanish Fork, and her family has had that farm for about four or five generations, and the knowledge has been passed down from person to person. So um, she knows that there have been fireflies on her property all of this time. So that's one way that we know. Another way is that we do think that the firefly um, that we're seeing most commonly throughout Utah is different enough from the ones back east that it's potentially a different species. I'm not absolutely positive. We're still doing work on that. And there's no way that it could have been introduced and then spread throughout the entire state just because they kind of suck at flying. (laughs) Why do you think it's important to document the fireflies in Utah? I have strong feelings about this. (laughs) So I'm glad you asked. They may not be the very most important species in the world. They may not be like a wolf that they are a keystone species that's holding the whole ecology together. But They are present where there's water, and they are a source of wonder for people. And they're so exciting for people to see. And a lot of times people will contact me and they'll say, they are so, so special to me, and I love them so much, and I want my children to see them, and I want my friends to see them, and I want my grandchildren to see them. And when people realize there's something right in our backyard that is so, so magical, I think it engenders a sense of stewardship and wonder, and it makes people fall more in love with what we have here and makes people feel even more in love with our own land and want to protect it. And sometimes wetlands don't get quite the same sense of love because you can't march into it. You know, it's not the grandeur of Zion, but anything we can do to make people feel a sense of protection and love and magic for our very own backyard, I think that that's worthy of our notice and our attention. Thanks to Emily Arnston at KZMU for that report. From fireflies to dragonflies, KGNU's Nature's Almanac tags along with Boulder naturalists Scott Seavers and Ruth Carol Cushman. I'm Carol. Carol, I met you, but it's been a long time. Yeah, nice to see good you. To see you. Yeah. Jennifer Jackson, friend of Scott's. <laughs> Jennifer and I had the luck of having jobs where we actually got to do what we love: ecological assessments, bugs to trees to the birds. And we were seeing something over here. Just blew this way, but I've lost sight of it now. I see it now. There's a little damsel on a piece of grass. Where is it? It's a little bit left of the bindweed flower on a diagonal piece of grass. Yes, I see it. Boy, they can disappear even when you're pointing right at it. We've come out to Walden and Sawhill Ponds to look for dragonflies. Dragonflies and damselflies are insectivorous. They eat other insects. Dragonflies hold their wings perpendicular to their body. 
they look like a small plane. That makes them much easier to see. Damselflies usually hold their wings backwards longitudinally to the body, so they look like a, uh, just like a little stick. Hmm. This is one of the more nondescript damselflies. A lot of them are brilliant turquoise blue, but this is sort of a brownish one. Is this a female, Scott? Yeah, I think it's a female forktail. Very plain compared to the males. But if you look closely, the eyes are emerald green. It's very pretty, even though it doesn't have any of that brilliant turquoise on it. Oh, another one arrived. Oh. Right in the same place. Was it a female or It was male? a male this time. Oh, was it bright turquoise? Yeah, like a Pacific. Oh, yeah, I see it. Oh, but I've lost it again. How can they disappear so quickly in the foliage? The damselflies... I always recommend looking below your knees for the damselflies because they're low flyers. Low and slow are the damselflies. Damselflies catch a lot of things off vegetation that they spot. What they'll do is they'll hover and then they'll pounce by hitting a branch or a twig and that means they plucked something off the grass. Oh, there he went. Oh, he's back. Jen, did you find something? One of the cattails that's broken off. It's fluttering its wings. Oh, yes, oh, I, I do see, see it. It's orange and red, red-faced. I haven't found it in the binos yet. I'd say it's a small dragonfly compared to the skimmers anyway. There it is, yes. Oh, is that a Halloween pennant? No, Halloween pennants would be very big. This is smaller. This is a eastern amber wing. Mm. Their whole mantra is to look wasp-like, to be left alone. They'll buzz their wings and move their bodies around much like a wasp to discourage things from messing with them. Mm. This is a female. She has dark patches on her wings. The male is where the name came from, and their wings are orange all the way through. Oh, it just flew. She's doing a bit of helicoptering. She's on a broken cattail, but every once in a while she'll helicopter straight up and then come back down. She's perched, and she'll sally up and catch something and come right back to her perch. That was a great find, Jen. This is one of the few ponds in all of Boulder County that we can find eastern amber wings. And now a darner has appeared above us. And they are the higher flyers of dragonflies. And they'll fly all day. It's very difficult to even capture them perched. It's foraging back and forth. It's about 8 to 10 feet over us. Oh, that's so cute. A red-winged blackbird female. She looks like a big sparrow, but she has a mouthful of food. I bet she has a nest or babies down in that plum thicket. Here are the baby red-winged blackbirds down in the patch of grass. There, they're begging and getting fed by mom. So maybe it'll catch one of our dragonflies. Yeah, yeah. red-winged blackbirds. They forage a lot on dragonflies. Here comes dad. The male red wings are black with a really bright red wing patch. So we're gonna slowly walk by on this trail, the nest, and we'll see if we can see the baby red-winged blackbirds. All the time not trying to approach too close. There's the baby right there. Look at that guy. Yeah, they've just fledged. We'll give them some space. Ruth Carol Cushman and Scott Seavers are friends. 
and Boulder Naturalists. Nature's Almanac from KGMU is produced by Shelley Schlender. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. I'm Maeve Conran. A summer skate camp in Telluride, Colorado, is teaching lessons in confidence, grit and courage. KOTO reporter Grace Richards dropped into the local town park to see a skate session in action. It's 9am on a Friday and the Telluride skate park is a beautiful kind of chaos. Everywhere you look, kids careen over the dips and curves of the rolling gray sea of cement, caught in an ephemeral rush of momentum and balance. They wear outrageously colorful knee pads and patterned wrist guards, cheetah print leggings. There's even a fuchsia unicorn horn helmet in the distance. You can hear the squeak of their trucks underfoot, an outcast song playing on distant speakers, and coaches encouraging kids to be brave, to try again when they fall down. Keep doing that, right? Repetition, what's gonna put it in your muscles? Aubrey, nice line. You okay? Are you okay? Okay, then get out of the bowl. (laughs) This is Telluride Skate Camp, a 16 years running program for people of all ages to learn the physics-defying art of skateboarding. Coach and owner of the drop board shop, Craig Wasserman, stands in the middle of the fray, guiding a wobbly knee child into her center of gravity on the board. Uh, my name is Craig Wasserman. I've been skateboarding pretty much my whole life. Wasserman, a retired art teacher, has been running the program since 2007. A bunch of kids that I started coaching and teaching back in 2007 and, you know, 2008, 2009, they're now my coaches. Skateboarding has long been a male-dominated sport. But I think that's only because a lot of little girls haven't had role models that show them they can do it too. But Wasserman says he sees that changing. With skateboarding in the Olympics, with Sky Brown, with all these young girls going for it, now they're like, oh, I can do that too. There is no shortage of little girls shredding the dips and hills of the skate park. If you count right now, I think there's more girls at camp than there are boys. And that's stepping up the level of skating, and it's also giving girls more confidence to walk tall in the world, too. Two boys crash into each other in a tangle of arms and legs. (laughs) You guys all right? It takes them only a second before they dust off and run after their boards, which have shot in opposite directions. No doubt about it, skateboarding is hard. It takes coordination, consistent practice, and a willingness to fall a lot. A young girl in a purple helmet named Shelby tells me she's been skating for a while. Like eight years. She's taken her share of tumbles. One time I was doing a trick. The other time I was skateboarding in the rain and I slipped out and I fell on my head. Balls happen. Injuries happen. It's part of the sport. It's different than football. It's different than softball or soccer or other sports kids play where we're just doing this for fun. We're kind of all on the same team. We're not trying to win or even be the best. We're just trying to have a really good time down here and share in the love of this kind of freedom that skateboarding offers. 
Wasserman says that skating cultivates the soft skills he remembers trying to teach kids in the classroom. Respect and patience and perseverance and dedication and focus and all these wonderful life skills. And skateboarding is so hard that it just teaches those things. So if a kid gets hooked and they start skating and they push themselves to get better, they're going to learn all those awesome life skills. And the biggest one that they can learn is dealing with fear. For children, fear often feels bigger than they are. When you get scared, you can either stop what you're doing and not try it, or you can be brave and try it anyways and face your fear. And that's what we teach kids, you know, five years old all the way up through adults. We teach them to face their fears, and then they can go and use that outside the skating room. Skating gives these small children the confidence, scrappiness, and self-esteem to hit that steep drop, shift their weight into a kick turn, or shred the bowl. They learn to look fear dead in the face. Public speaking, foreign language, math class, um, you know, dancing in front of other, like who cares? Whatever it is, they know how to deal with their fear and they can feel confident and walk tall outside the skate park too. I'm KOTO reporter Grace Richards. You can see photos from the Telluride Skate Camp at koto.org. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. And now for some music. Two bagpipers from the National Piping Centre of Scotland were in Aspen earlier this month for several performances with the Aspen Music Festival and School. Aspen Public Radio's Kaya Williams brings us these audio postcards. First, here's bagpiper William McCallum. I think it's one of these instruments that catches people's ear at first, then it captures their heart because it's a very emotional instrument. It has just a special sound. Um, some of our music, it, you know, it make you cry and hopefully not in pain, you know. <laughs> but it's the opportunity to pass on what you already have learned in your life and hopefully the future of the instrument and the playing of the music is, is safe. That's what you want. When I started bagpiping, I couldn't wait. I was kind of immersed in it because it's a big family tradition going back to... Well, we've got pipers recorded back to 1782 or something like that. So it's been a long time and the, and the line hasn't been broken. So I think if I wasn't a bagpiper, there would have been something wrong. It seemed the most natural thing in the world. Next up, bagpiper Finlay MacDonald performing at the top of Aspen Mountain. It's a, it's a very sociable thing, piping. You know, there's a great community spirit around piping. And that, for me, is the most important thing. I'm lucky I've been asked to play with some pretty famous mainstream music acts, shall we say, including P. Diddy, a really famous Scottish band called Biffy Clyro, Primal Scream, another kind of famous rock band, and Brian Adams, the singer. We're lucky that we get to travel all over the world, pretty much. You know, we love it, so it's just taking it to other people and letting them hear our music and see our music and feel it, you know. My best friends have all been met through piping and through music, and it's a real, you know, it's a real life. You know, it's my vocation. It's just, it's just what I do, and I can't ever imagine not piping. Thanks to Kaya Williams of Aspen Public Radio. Well, from bagpipers in Aspen, 
We go next to hear traditional Pueblo dancers who performed recently at Mesa Verde. KSJD's Chris Clements visited the national park where he caught a performance of the Oak Canyon Dance Group from northern New Mexico. Oak Canyon Dance Group from northern New Mexico performed earlier this month at the Mesa Verde National Park. The dancers are a family dance group from the Pueblo of Jemez, New Mexico. The name, Oak Canyon, is their clan name in the Pueblo, which is passed down from the mother's side. Thanks to Chris Clements from KSJD for that audio postcard. And we close out today's show on a Rocky Mountain high, with a performer who has been entertaining tourists and locals alike for nearly three decades at the gateway to the Rocky Mountain National Park in Estes Park, Colorado. This particular singer bears more than a passing resemblance to another well-known Colorado troubadour. Hi, my name is Brad Fitch and I am known as Cowboy Brad. I have been playing in the park in downtown Estes Park for 27 summers. It would have been 28 had not the COVID thing happened in 2020. Well, actually, I can remember being a kid and people would say to me, you look like that guy on the radio. And uh, I did. 
<laughs> and so I think my appearance came Well, having been a kid in the 1970s, raised here in Estes Park, Colorado, John Denver was everywhere. You know, the, the governor appointed him as the, the uh, poet laureate of Colorado. He was a big influence and his music was on the radio everywhere. And naturally, I absorbed a lot of that. Now, when I started playing in the park, I noticed that people, tourists, visitors, wanted to hear John Denver music because they associate his songs with Colorado. And so I learned more and more of them. I've had visitors come to hear me sing uh, from all over the world. Last night it was Indonesia. I've had people from China, Japan, Australia. Uh, I've had people from African nations, from Eastern Europe, um, from all over the UK, Canada, South America, Mexico, and all over the United States. Because here recently, I'm getting people come up, young adults with babies, who say to me, my parents brought me here when I was my child's age. That's rather startling. <laughs> but it's also really nice to know that generations have been coming to hear me do this for the last 27 summers. Teardrop in my eye, country roads, take me home. To the place I West Virginia. The most requested John Denver song is Rocky Mountain High. I think I play that every night of the summer. Song you wanted to hear? Rock, oh, Rocky Mountain High. God, I have been meaning to learn that song. I'd be happy to play. That's our state song here, you know? Rocky Mountain High. Well, I never get tired of playing Rocky Mountain High or those songs um, because it gives people so much joy to hear them. They associate that music with this place. And I enjoy being part of their experience and sort of providing the, uh, the quintessential uh, soundtrack for their visit. Well, John Denver has been called the song's best friend, and I don't know who named him that, but his music really is classic. It, it's lyrical, uh, it evokes emotions in people, and a lot of sentimentality. And again, when people come here to the Rocky Mountains, they associate it with John Denver. And so uh, playing his music for the visitors here from all over the world, I feel adds a nice element to their visit. Cowboy Brad Fitch will finish up his 27th season performing for tourists and locals in downtown Estes Park at the end of August. Rocky Mountain.
where? Rocky Mountain High, where? He climbed Cathedral Mountains, saw silver clouds below, saw You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Emily Arnston of KZMU in Moab, Shelley Schlender of KGNU in Boulder and Denver, Grace Richards at KOTO in Telluride, Kaya Williams of Aspen Public Radio, and Chris Clements of KSJD. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>